Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. How do you feel in your relationships? Do you feel that your emotional needs are met? Or are you constantly feeling let down by the people you draw close to you? Well, it might be down to your attachment style. And even though you may not realize it, it's causing you to get into these dynamics time and time again that make you feel dissatisfied and unfulfilled. The good news is it doesn't have to be this way. And my guest, psychotherapist and couples counselor, Jessica Baum, explains why in this episode of the podcast. In order to move forward, though, we do need to go back. And as Jessica explains in the show, understanding where you're at now with your relationships requires confronting what it is you may be looking for from friends, partners, etc. And why they may not be able to give you what you want or what you need right now. Her book, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love, explores the anxious attachment style. An anxious attachment can be looked at in one of two ways. There are two Uh, distinct styles if you like there's anxious ambivalent attachment which can look like someone who's needy and can go hand in hand with someone who has low self-esteem they may crave connection but under the surface they're always fearful that the people that they're trying to get close to don't want to be with them there's this uh, consistent fear of rejection or abandonment which might make them seem clingy Then there's anxious avoidant, where people will avoid connecting with others and may rely on themselves and find confronting emotions really difficult. And these people may look confident and self-sufficient. They may seem like they have it all together, but underneath they're really struggling to build healthy relationships and they're very aware of this. So if either of those two attachment styles sound like you, the good news is that you can deconstruct this. You can deconstruct your attachment style by doing the work. And this is the work that Jessica outlines in the show. 
By doing this work, you can actually move away from anxious attachments towards secure ones, which are far less fraught and stressful. But that's not to say it's going to be an easy journey. Like anything though, it's hard work, but it's work worth doing. And one of the pillars of Jessica's work is to encourage people to be self-full, where you set boundaries, know what your needs are and put them first. And that's not selfish, by the way. And also know how to communicate what your needs are to others when it's needed. During our conversation, Jessica explains how our attachment styles show up, why they may have protected us at one point in our lives, usually when we're kids, how to get in touch with yourself so you know what your needs are and how to communicate them, how to set boundaries and form more secure attachments with people. There's also a little bit of a chat about the draw of narcissists if you're an anxious attacher and much, much more. I found Jessica's book really helpful. Actually, I say really helpful, massively confronting. I definitely am an anxious attacher. And this conversation and the book actually really made me see with clarity some of the changes I need to make uh, in order to move forward where I don't have that stress around feeling that my needs aren't met uh, consistently, which is something I want to work on, which is why I'm doing the work that she's outlined in her book. So my hope is that for anyone listening who maybe has identified with the descriptions of the anxious attachment styles I just mentioned, for anyone who's listening who feels they aren't getting what they need or want from their relationships, this offers you the guide to get to a place where you do because I think sometimes you can think it's because of what we're doing and we're we can then overcompensate and actually make it about someone else or the other person or what we're doing outwardly and actually the focus needs to be a little bit more inward well that's my my first golden nugget that I would like to share with you but let me hand over to Jessica who will tell you exactly what this is all about how it shows up and how you can really help yourself so if uh, any of this resonates I think this is going to be a really helpful episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. So the link to the book will be in the show notes. It's a brilliant read. It's a very easy read as well. But um, here she is. Joining me on The Emma Gunn Show is Jessica Baum. Very warm welcome to The Emma Gunn Show, Jessica Baum. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you. It is really wonderful to have you on the show. You are a psychotherapist and couples counselor, and you have explored a topic that I'm not going to lie. It's pretty confronting for somebody to consume your media, what you have written, which means I'm wondering whether it's pretty confronting to actually put it out there as well. Absolutely. I think I'm a little bit vulnerable in it and yeah, putting it out there. Yeah. It's just vulnerable, but so necessary. So I felt like I needed to do it. And what we're talking about specifically, and actually I think as self-help and as these topics are explored much more widely, like we talk about mental health, for example, so much more freely than we did even 10 years ago. Listeners may be familiar with this idea of the different types of attachments that humans have with each other. Mm-hmm. And what you've really delved into is anxious attachment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only anxious attachment, I actually touch a lot on avoidant attachment too, because the two really connect and tend to partner up. I think it's important to have compassion and understanding of both sides of the coin. Because even if you're anxious, your partner might have some avoidant tendencies and understanding that from a nervous system lens helps the anxious person not personalize every single behavior. Well, okay. So that's really interesting because it is, as you say, two sides of the coin and they're also sort of 
drawn to each other in many ways and then mm. there's the other type of attachment which is far more stable and they they sort of tend to be not fine necessarily but maybe don't have to excavate their past as much as avoidant and attack um anxious for sure i think their strategies like in a secure she's talking about a secure base and the truth is they have patterns too and if they partner with someone who's really avoidant they're going to have some anxious stuff come up or if they partner with someone who's anxious they might have some avoidant tendencies come up but the degree of that um going on in their body and their system usually isn't as as heightened um and again, attachment is a two-way street. So it's really embedded patterns that you have combined with who you're attaching with and how your combined embedded patterns are playing out in your coupleship, like in the energy inside your relationship. And I think when I was reading this, listeners, I was just saying to Jessica before we started recording, reading her book, which the link to which will be in the show notes, Anxiously Attached, was quite confronting because a lot of it really spoke to me and my life experience and how relationships have gone terribly sideways in the past and the connections that I have with people. And it took me a little while into the book before I thought, hang on, there's no way you wrote this just for me. So this must affect a lot of people. Oh my God. I think to variant degrees, it affects a lot. Yeah. A lot of people, they've been on one side of the coin or the other, maybe repeating the same pattern over and over again, or feeling like they are attracting the same partner and the same wounds are showing up. And, you know, a big piece of why I wrote this is, well, my own personal story and what I see in couples counseling, but also to explain that your behaviors aren't crazy. And this is what's going on in your body. And this is why you're wired this way. And so when you can start to understand it that way, you start to build some more, a compassion and understanding of your reactions in things. And you start to make sense of things. And it's in that like new understanding of yourself that you start to shift and you start to move towards security. And we'll talk more about that. But yeah, I think everybody, I'm excited because I think everybody has experienced this to some degree or another, whether it's them or they've been on the other side, or maybe you're secure and you've partnered with that one really avoidant person who's ghosted you or just really avoided you. And, you know, you got close to them and where did they go and it, it impacted you. So I think, you know, I think it's a very relatable topic. Mm. And I think from what you've just said as well, you can feel as though you're doing something wrong. You're pushing people away, but I, I really learned a lot from this. And actually, I think by the time I got to the end of the book, I had a real sense of you need to cut yourself a break. Mm-hmm. What you're working with right now and repeating these particular patterns is, is the you've done the best that you can do. Mm-hmm. But now mm-hmm. that you your eyes have been opened to it, now you get to potentially and hopefully make some significant changes, which is really what you hold readers' hands through in the book, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're experiencing a lot of pain in your relationship, while that person might have behaviors that are painful, it it also is an opportunity to look at what it's bringing up deep inside of you. So I also kind of empower the reader to use the relationships as a flashlight in. So you don't always have to look at everything was here's another failed relationship, but rather what came up for me and how can I look at that differently where I can grow? And I just... I think there's so much empowerment, self-empowerment that we can grow from every relationship if we choose to kind of really understand the dynamics and, and where our work is and what's being touched deeply inside of us. It gives more meaning to some of the harder moments or experiences. 
And you're really honest. I think what's lovely about the book is that as much as you talk about the patterns from your experience as a psychotherapist, you also share your own life experience and talk about, you know what it's like to be stuck in that groove, how difficult it can be to go through the work, but how rewarding it can be on the other side. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, in my twenties, I identified as codependent, which I'm sure is a word that a lot more people identify with. And I read every single book and listeners who can't see me, I have every single self-help book behind me. Um, and while codependency, some of the big ones really did help me, they didn't explain what was going on in my body. And I didn't really, really at the root of that is attachment theory and how you adapted. And so I wanted, you know, I wanted people to know that I've had these sensations in my gut or I've had these experiences, just kind of what the rug up pulled out from underneath me. And I was left so confused. Um, I originally went back to school to because of depression and anxiety. But as I started my other training, I did a lot of training in couples work. I started to see these energies play out with couples and the core wound contracts. And I talk about the unconscious contracts and the nervous systems reacting in each partnership. And I was like, I have to get this information out to the world. The, the regular reader, I mean, us therapists, and, and I studied a lot in couples counseling, like Imago therapy, and, and that means you attract an image of your primary caregivers, and I can go into that. But I was seeing so much play out in my office, and I was like, God, the everyday reader needs to know this information, because when you know this information, you make healthier choices, you're more forgiving, you understand what your relational needs are, you're able to like kind of navigate your love life so differently and perhaps heal deeper and pick partners who might offer a safer place for your patterns to show up and do the healing with. I think what's really interesting as well is that you start off with actually helping helping people understand how they got here and actually there's a one of the sections in the book is called how we lose ourselves. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I I think that, you know, the, the first part of the book is in order to heal, like you need healing relationships and you need to do what we call the inner work and build that, um, that connection to your body. But I think when you understand how you adapted and how you became what I call it, sometimes you self-abandon, I call it selfless mm -hmm. and you give yourself away and you overcompensate and you don't have boundaries. And these are codependent, quote unquote, codependent traits. There are really ways in which you wanted to stay in connection. And there are ways in which you learned how to stay in connection when you were really little. And most people can't always make that big connection, but we're wired to stay in connection. So when and if we feel our partner moving out of connection or when or if we want love from another, we tend to sacrifice parts of ourselves thinking if I overcompensate or if I am attuned to their needs, um, I will get the love that I want, but in, in return, we self-abandon and we lose sense of our own self. And what people don't understand is actually a very, very early adaptive strategy that we're usually not conscious of. So once we can start to really understand that we can say, okay, well, there's no shame in self-abandonment. There's no shame in a selfless state. It's actually a survival state, but now I can start to notice what I'm doing it and perhaps challenge it by not losing myself quite so much, or at least becoming aware of it when I'm doing it and get some support around that. Um, you know, so part of the work is becoming more embodied and anxious people tend to track the bodies of others. So they tend to be hypervigilant of their partners. They can, you know, have activating strategies. They tend to be hyper aware of their external world to survive 
and they can disconnect from their internal world because they had to in their home. And, and I don't know that if you're listening, you might be like, oh, that's not me. But if you're in a relationship and you can tell what your partner's mood is and what they need, I can tell you what my dog needs downstairs more than sometimes what I need. You know that you are programmed to be that sensitive to others and that there's a reason for that. And that's a beautiful thing. Once you learn how to have your own needs, take care of your own needs, and that you can take care of others and your own needs and have that fluid exchange of both. But often what happens is we become hyper-focused of the needs of others and we um, we lose our sense of self in some way in that. And so c- coming home and back embodied is part of the process of healing. It's a really interesting part of the whole story. And I think I would just want to acknowledge there, it's covered in the book. And actually, again, it's one of the points where I got an element of comfort because uh, on the one hand, you realize that some of these adaptations that you make are because your needs weren't met when you were a child, which instantly means that you're looking to your parent figures. And one doesn't want to blame them necessarily and point out all of the things that maybe you feel happened to you. So is there a way to reconcile that so that you Mm. can move forward? Because I know it sounds like such a silly thing to bring up, but in Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, he has like the 10 rules for living. And one of them is at some point, you've got to stop blaming your parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love this question, Emma, because I think you have to grieve for what you didn't get. But I think when you read the book, you understand that your parents were giving you love in the way they received. And this is where intergenerational stuff gets passed down. So if your parents were locked in what we call a sympathetic, or if they were stressed out, like, for example, my mom was going through a divorce. She had postpartum depression. She was really worried about me. She loves the crap out of me. Right. And she is, you know, the most loving mother in the way that she knew how. And she was going through a lot of things herself and her nervous system wasn't always attuning well enough for me. And so none of that is her fault. So I think you can grieve. Okay. I wish maybe I had better attunement, but I also need to know that my parents were giving me love in the way they received or probably showing up the best that they could, even if they made mistakes. I think the intention usually is good and they're they're giving from a place of what they know. And sometimes it impacts you. So what I like to tell clients, because a lot of clients don't want to blame their parents and they don't want to look back at their parents. And this is not about blame. It's about understanding what you received and what you didn't receive from the lens of what they received and what they didn't receive. You know, so it's no one's at blame. I think there's a little bit of grief around, oh, I wish I received a little more nurturing or a little more love at some point or care at these moments. And so these little moments have big impacts on you, but most of the time our parents are doing the best they can. So both are true. You can grieve for what we call little me and what she needed or he needed. And you can also have an adult perspective of, wow, my parents were probably juggling a a million things and their intention was never to directly hurt me, but they did impact me. Mm -hmm. So knowing those two things are really important as you do the work. Gosh. Okay. I mean, that, I mean, I don't want to gloss over that because I feel as though that's such an important thing to say quite early on um, because I think it can be very tempting to look at what's happened to you rather than sort of park it and then think about how you can uh, move forward positively. I I think a lot of people want to get stuck in the victim role there too, Mm. but the truth is a lot of people also aren't in touch at all 
with what they went through. So both, both truths are, oh, I had the perfect childhood or there wasn't anything that bad, or I felt abandonment at this one time. And it's not about being a victim. It's about understanding. And it's not about being complete. It's about getting in touch with maybe the things that you didn't get. And, you know, we use the word trauma, like it's not about trauma. It's about these little moments that had big impacts on you and your parents maybe had no idea because when you're that small, your world is very like that they are your world. And so when they do things, it impacts you in a big way. And so as an adult, that might not make sense, but now you have to start to see yourself through the eyes of a four-year-old or eyes of a six-year-old and start to make sense of more of your history. Mm. And you mentioned little me and little me Mm. is someone who comes up a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. And I guess as somebody I've done therapy and I've been in that session where they've said, now imagine yourself as a little girl, Mm -hmm. get a clear picture of her in your mind. What would you do to her? And I don't know anyone who hasn't completely fallen apart when they, when they think about how they would have cared for their, you know, little girl self. Little me is really important in this process, isn't it? Yeah, they're really important. And so a little me is always hypervigilant around abandonment and the amygdala part of your brain, because of the inconsistency, if you have anxious attachment, like the feeling the shoe is going to drop, little me lives in your heart and in your belly and in your brain. And the amygdala is scanning for these things. And the memories are both in sensation and in actual, the memories, the type of memories that you're thinking of. And so we carry little me and I refer to this as subconscious and in therapy or in psychology, we can talk about this as sometimes implicit wounds too. So sensations that live in your body, but we carry these parts of us that, and they're driving the show a lot more than you think below the surface. And so part of the work of the book is to get conscious of how your little me is still making choices for you, um, tending to her differently understanding the core wounds attached to what she unders or what she or he is believing deep down. Like I'm always going to be left or I'm not worthy. And I go through the core wounds and those core wounds are important. The sensations attached to them are important. And the location in your body is all important. And when you're really unpacking and trying to kind of change your subconscious and work with limiting beliefs, you're talking about little me, you're talking about early, early programming. And, you know, I think if you have the belief, I'm always going to be left in your subconscious or in your little me, you're going to play that fear out. So it's our work to kind of start to look at that and, and look where it came from and heal that as much as we can so that we don't have the same patterns playing out. Cause essentially we trying to avoid that outcome, but in, it's in the avoidance of that outcome that we create more chaos in our life. Mm, chaos. You're, you're absolutely right. It can feel, I don't know about anyone listening, but it can feel that you get to a point where you just think it's such a mess. I don't know where to begin. Like, how do I even go back and repair and make the difference? How do I reset boundaries? And obviously that's something that you cover in the book. So you mentioned, um, core wounds. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we can uh, dig into those a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Boundaries and core wounds are big things, both, both big topics in the book. And I think, I think if you're listening, you probably have a sense of one of your core wounds. It's like your biggest fear. I know for me, it's like, I'm always going to be alone. And if you really look at my childhood, there was like some neglect there or like people leaving me alone a lot. So the sense of loneliness lives deep inside of me. And I'm, 
I unconsciously scan my environment or look for one that might happen, or I case build around it if I'm, if I'm not aware. And so I list these core wounds and they're the unmet needs that develop a narrative and that narrative or that I'm going to be alone or I'm not good enough. And there's a whole list of them deep down when we're really in pain, it's kind of the narrative we go back to, but it's the sensation in the pain that feels familiar and it keeps cycling in our life. And then that's the narrative we attach to. And it's actually the core wounds, the literal words of it are less important than the sensation of it, because the sensation is what keeps getting repeated. If you're in a relationship over and over and over again, you, you hit a wall and this is what's coming up for you. And these are the sensations that are coming up for you, you know, boom, that's where, where the, the root is. And that's where the work is. And that's where you want to go back to, to heal so that you are not, you know, repeating again, it's all about repeat You're changing your patterns, your energetic patterns, and you're healing so that you're not re-experiencing this in every single relationship. When we're, one of the things you talk about in the book as well is these relationships that we can get into and one of the things you say quite early on which is so familiar to me is this idea of making a connection with somebody who you see something in them that completes you or you think that they embody parts of you that you don't have so you almost attach to those people to try and make yourself whole but they end up being or can be sort of dangerous for the little me Yeah. I mean, so you're, you know, you're talking about like little me looking at someone who possibly is stable and secure and possibly independent and she's seeing or idealizing the traits or even your adult self wishes you had. And maybe they promise that they'll never leave you alone or, you know, that they promise your little me the thing or happily ever after there's love bombing involved they promise her everything she's been waiting for. So there's a sense of, oh, oh, my dreams have come true. And this is everything I've been waiting for. And don't get me wrong, relationships are wonderful. And I'm not, I'm not by any means saying that, you know, if there's some promises or ideals in the beginning of the relationship, that's wrong. Actually, part of that is normal. But relationships are hard. And they're going to bring up some of your core wounds and your hard work and having a conscious awareness of the stages, which I go through and rupture and repair and how this person who maybe promised or showed up perfectly one day might feel like they betrayed you because life got in the way and they're not there for your little me in the same way. And they couldn't possibly attuned and, and stay perfect the whole time. It's going to bring up disappointment for that part of you and your adult self. and, And this is what I talk about needs to know that that that's actually normal. We, you know, our little me attaches in the beginning. And then as the relationship unfolds um, and things get harder and there's conflict and all of that, um, revisiting what relationships are really a, a process of rupture and repair and unfolding. And there's different stages and it can't stay in that blissful stage where little me might feel enmeshed and the center of the world, the way a baby would feel. And that, you know, that transitions out and that transition out can be awful if you don't really understand the neuroscience, believe it or not, behind it, because a lot of that has to do with a baby and and neurochemicals that we receive um, when we're a baby. And then the same neurochemicals that kind of are released in the beginning phases of a relationship. Mm. 
<laughs> this is so this is all very confronting because I'm thinking yeah as soon as as soon as me personally feels the energy shift I think what have I done wrong what can I do more mm. and that's that's where I that's where I have lost myself in relationships and friendships because I'm I'm like right I need to kick it up a gear which probably takes us neatly into one of the other subjects that we talk about is how these anxious attachments can actually be like honey to narcissists. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about narcissism in the book and um, narcissism is, is a personality disorder and these are attachment disorders and anxious people can actually be narcissistic too. But, um, you know, I'm careful with that word, but yeah, I think the important part that, you know, is that an, an anxious person who doesn't, who's less, feels less than and not good enough um, and didn't get to feel like she was the center of the world when they meet a narcissist or someone who love bombs. And sometimes people love bomb from a very genuine place. And it's not necessarily narcissist. Like sometimes that's very genuine in terms of how they're feeling in that moment. But the vulnerability around the potency of those feeling like I'm the center and getting all this attention feels so good because your brain is releasing so many chemicals that you're more vulnerable to stay hooked to wanting more and more of that feeling. Um, So it's multi-layered. I would say when it comes to a healthy relationship, and if you believe your partner has some narcissistic qualities, if they don't have humility and they don't have empathy for you, what you're experiencing, and they can never say sorry and take ownership of their part, you're looking at a relationship that can't deepen. And you're looking at a person who might have too much shame um, to look inward and really do the work to meet with you and deepen the relationship. Those are really the qualities you need um, in a relationship because we all have narcissistic tendencies. We've, and I talk about that, like different states, selfful, selfish states, we can all be in those states at different times. And it's really a survival state. But if your partner really can't empathize with you, apologize, and doesn't have a lot of humility, they might have too much shame and struggle with deep vulnerability, the deep vulnerability it takes in order to build deeper levels of connection. So I break that down to help you really get an idea of what could work because people who are avoidant could work. A lot of them have a lot of empathy. And you know, what's interesting is that avoidant people and narcissists can look similar on the same uh, the, out from the outside because they both can seem cold and disconnected, but someone who's avoidant is, is struggling and can have empathy and just shuts down and can distance themselves. It's very different than someone who is, has more narcissistic qualities and has no empathy, less empathy and, and avoidant people can have less empathy too, but really lack vulnerability and um, the ability to kind of build that connection through deep apologies and deep understanding of what's going on in your world. They just can't do that. And therefore you can never repair um, the fights in a way that gets you closer. It just kind of breaks the ground. It makes it shakier and shaker. And you realize that you can't fight with your partner and you can't, you can't get to deeper levels of understanding because that capacity is just not there. I think what the, what your work really points out is and you've just described it there is having compassion for everybody, even if they may be hurting you because their hurt is coming mm-hmm. from the wounds that they may have from childhood or from uh, how they felt when they were in the formative years. And so 
it can feel, I guess, when someone isn't fulfilling your needs, that they're doing it deliberately, that they're consciously thinking, I know that you need me to be around and I'm willingly choosing to, to remove myself, to hurt you even more. But actually, it might not even be that linear. That might just mm-hmm. be how it looks, but it isn't necessarily what's going on. And what you've really pointed out offers all parties compassion. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really important, especially if you're anxious, to understand um, avoidant um, behaviors because your partner might be having some of these behaviors because they're trying to self-regulate and their way of regulating is to pull away. And your way of feeling calm is to get closer and back into connection. And so you're both needing the opposite thing at the very same moment. And that doesn't mean that your relationship's not working. That means your nervous systems have learned to seek safety in ways that the other person's nervous system can't provide and actually causes more chaos. So like if you're anxious, you might, you might want connection to help you calm down and feel reassured. And if you're avoidant, you might need to stay away and keep a little bit busy to kind of regulate your system. And all of this is sometimes happening on a subconscious level, but then you start pointing the finger at, and it's true that avoidant person can't show up for you when you're that anxious, they can't hold the space because their nervous system is saying, oh my God, this is dangerous because you're actually activated in that moment. And, you know, when you see them pull away and distance themselves, they're actually activated in that moment. And so it's still painful, but when you can understand the nervous system response, you stop personalizing it as much and you stop blaming and you stop projecting as much. And so sometimes it opens the door and I do talk about it in chapter eight around how to talk about this differently and how to come up ways where both people can work with their nervous system and come back to the table and get back into connection. Mm. And I also think this is probably a good time to mention one of the things you talk about slightly earlier on in the book, actually, which just made me just, I wanted to punch the air when I read this is about this kind of romantic ideal of love that particularly women are force fed, which if you think about it, it's like uh, Twilight, Fifty Shades. It's all this thing about that you meet this one person and you become everything to them. You're the only person who can calm them down like it's 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 a very toxic version of love and it actually really isn't helpful for these attachment styles is it well it's helpful for a child who's in a home with some neglect and abandonment because what they're doing is instead of feeling the neglect or the abandonment in the moment they're looking at cinderella or they're looking at snow white and they're projecting oh one day i'm going to get my needs met and it's a way of coping with escape early on. The problem is it gets imprinted. And as you get older, you think, or you can, and it feels that way in the beginning of a relationship, someone's going to come along and swoop you off your feet and save you from all this pain and meet all your needs. And there you go. Love bombing becomes that much more enticing. But yeah, I think, you know, I threw Twilight in there. I give them saying this, like I was obsessed with Twilight. And I think a couple of people who are editing my book, they're like Twilight. And I'm like, there's two love addicts in that story who get to live forever in love and never die. And by the way, never get old. Mm-hmm. What, what more soothing to someone who is scared of death, scared of separation, wants to stay in the love bubble. You know, it's like, that's intoxicating for us. I don't know. 
if I, I'm sure not every listener can relate, but it was intoxicating for me at the time. And yet, um, they, you know, Bella wanted to die at one point, you know, because she was hurting so bad. And so, yeah, I think, you know, these messages are confusing because, that's not really the reality of most relationships are hard. And there are days when you question your partner and, you know, your core wounds definitely show up in your relationship and it's time to do the work and get more conscious about it. And it's not a portal of bliss. And our culture does not really show us like what conscious relationships really mean. And if you're going through this, it's actually normal. And this is how you get underneath it. Or this is what's really going on. It's just like, that's bad. Get back on a dating app, go try again, blah, 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 transactional, or this is something's wrong, do something about it. And the truth is like, there might not be anything wrong, but it might be touching something deep inside of you, which is a profound opportunity to heal but we just are not given this information. I had to go to school for, I don't know how many years and get extensive training to understand this fully and realize that no, nothing's wrong with your relationship. Your stuff is showing up and it's going to show up in most relationships. And it's an opportunity, not a tragedy, even if it feels like a tragedy in the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Now uh, to bring up another book, I'm going to talk about Harry Potter in a minute, but it's like you Mm -hmm. say, um, it's sort of switching out of, on this podcast, we've talked about lots of mental health issues in, in detail. And one of the things that we've explored is this victim mentality and how easy it is to think that life is happening to you. And what you've just described is that the, these same patterns in relationships are happening to you without taking ownership of what you're bringing to the table. They happen within the relationship dynamic, but your patterns are inside of you. And so if the world is only happening to you, while that can feel good in the moment and it does not empower you or give you a sense of agency at all. And so I think what I really tried to do in the book is be like, these patterns are inside of you and you can heal them. And hallelujah, you don't need a partner to heal them. You can be in relationship to heal them. You can be exactly where you are. And I think for someone who's anxious, that's a very empowering thing. We want to heal. We are a population who definitely reads self-help and seeks therapy. Thank God we reach out for help. We're good co-regulators. We want to heal. And knowing that, you know, our relationships, and I love it when a couple can heal together. I'm a couples counselor, but I think it's important to know that like you can heal your own wounds. You don't need another person to do this work per se, except for a therapist or people to hold space for you. Um, and if you put it all on them, I mean, you're an, you're missing a huge opportunity for you to, to change you and, and not to change you, but to understand you on such a deeper level. And I, I see a lot of people, oh, he's a narcissist and label people. And, and I get, it helps in the moment while you're in pain, but you pick people for a reason. And I talk about the unconscious, um, choose choosing of people and relationships are a dance of two people. So as much as you might not like to hear this, it's, it's important that you look at your part of the dance always and take some responsibility, but more awareness about what's really going on instead of just blaming your partner for everything that went wrong. Well, I said I was going to mention Harry Potter and it's because, um, are you familiar with Harry Potter in the way that you as literate with Twilight as you are Harry Potter? Uh, Yeah, I just watched it all over again with my (laughs) stepchildren. So yes, I love Harry Potter and I'm obsessed with like, I don't know, that type of fantasy world and things. I want an owl, but yes, anyway, go on. 
So for me, the part of Harry Potter that is so moving and actually like broke my heart was where Harry is waiting because he says, my father comes and he conjures a Patronus and he's going to save us. And it's Hermione who makes him, I'm getting chills up my back just thinking about it. Hermione is like, it's not your father, it's you. You're going to save you. And that for me in my own therapy and when you talk about in the book about becoming self-full, that to me is that thing that sends shivers up my spine because actually realizing it's all within you. You have all of the component parts you need to uh-huh. figure this out. You just might have to walk over the coals a little bit to get them, but they are there. Yeah, no, I mean, and yeah, I think that's, that's beautiful. And, you know, I talk about reparenting in the book and I think when you're in a relationship knowing what the responsibility of the coupleship is versus what your own personal responsibility is in terms of tending to your own feelings and things like that is an evolution. It is our, it's our couple, it's our partner's job to be conscious and hopefully understand us deeply and make little modifications for us and and be tender with us when things come up. And it's also our job to know when big feelings come up, it's not always the other person's job to fix them, to regulate them. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, Which is complicated for an anxious person because sometimes we can't self-regulate. But to tend to our emotional states and be with ourselves in a caring, compassionate way, instead of handing that responsibility completely over to another human being who, by the way, can help us at times. That's where it gets confusing. And sometimes they can show up for us. And then when they can't, we're like, what the hell? <laughs> and so learning both your partner can um, show up for you in certain ways. And this beautiful, you can learn how to be you know, your own best friend, your own healer, your own nurturer, provide yourself with more of what you didn't get when you start to build this relationship with these parts of yourselves from within, which it's a very far out there concept, but it sounds like you have an understanding of that a little bit. And, you know, when I'm really upset, I can share what's going on with my partner, but I can also talk to myself and validate oh, yeah, this makes sense you're feeling really lonely right now or this is familiar for you or take some deep breaths or it's not your his job to fix this within you hopefully he gets curious when he can or maybe he's going through something right now so I have these conversations with her that help de-escalate the um, tantrum that could take place 
That's really interesting. One of the notes I made when I was reading the book was these extreme responses. Sometimes, if, and I know sometimes something will happen and it's just the red mist or it's that hot feeling and I just want to lash out. And it's you joining the dots for me, just like that's because it, that extreme response is a childhood reaction. Was that what mm-hmm. you wrote? Yeah, it's yeah. a childhood wound that's just been exposed and just like been just got at. Yeah. And I think um, somewhere in chapter eight, I talk about rage and we don't realize this, but if a baby goes unseen, unmet for long enough, there's a hairline trigger in the back of our neck and the natural response is to get louder, louder, turn up the volume, turn up the volume to our cry is really loud, a sympathetic cry to full-blown rage. It is scary when we feel that our needs aren't going to get met. So if our partner shuts down, or something called a blank face, or they connect, which by the way, means that they're in a trauma reaction. Our natural and actually healthy response that's been programmed is rage. So it happens in a millisecond because we're sensing danger. Where the hell are you? Why don't you see me? Why aren't you with me? If that happens enough, yeah, like it's zero to a thousand. And sometimes you can't stop that. All you can do is in the middle of it, notice it and maybe perhaps not act out on it and and start to understand that this is an automatic response to a very terrifying feeling that the person that you're in connection with is literally checked out for whatever reason. And, you know, it's, it's, again, it comes down to the nervous system and understanding your nervous system and your, you can work with that by becoming more conscious of it. You can't change your automatic nervous system as you heal. And we talk about earned security, you expand self-fullness, which is really your window of tolerance. So what happens is these, these patterns happen in your body and you start to see them happening. And there's more space where you're not responding or reacting in the moment to them, but you're able to observe them more on good days. There are good days and there are bad days when we're a little or more or less resourced, but as you're healing, you're able to say, oh, wow, my nervous system is being in a reactive mode. This is what I want to do. This makes sense, but this is what I'm going to do. And you, that's when you know, you're building, um, you're building new wiring, you're building some more options in there. And hopefully with time, you know, that new, those new patterns become more familiar and you're less, you're reactive patterns um, go down, but that's a very normal response when you are terrified that someone that you're love with is gone. I think that's really interesting about the idea that you can rewire, because again, it's that you have agency here, you have some element of control, it's going to take work, but you can. And I think- I was chatting to a couple of friends before I uh, spoke to you this afternoon, actually. And I was saying, what are the things that, that show up for you? Do you think one of my friends said something really interesting, which was that they had kind of taught themselves not to react because they thought that being overreactive was something that uh, got them reactions from people that they didn't like. So they just were like, I'm just going to be cool, man. No big deal. I'm just going to always be mellow but that was a real suppression of what was really going on. And her work was to actually be able to learn to say, again, I'm furious about this, or mm-hmm. please don't do that. But there was a real learned suppression of all of those emotions because she didn't want to um, express anything that might make someone tell her she was bad or wrong or being, I don't know, argumentative. 
Yeah. And so she learned if I suppress this, I won't have to go through the feelings that might come up when this person reacts to this part of me. And, you know, that's a dangerous path to walk on. One thing you can do is react within yourself, write it down, figure out what's going on it, rant, rave, rant and rave to another person who doesn't pour more gasoline on it, but then boil it down to the boundary, the request or the wound. You know, when this happened, this is what came up in me. What I need you to know about me is what I could request from you next time is it's a very different response than anger, blame and name calling, you know, so you, you want to pay attention to what's going on inside. You want to tend to it in a way that helps you get to an adult place of sharing it where your partner can receive it, but you don't want to ignore it completely because that will backfire in a big way for you. And you're not taking care of little me. You're not really honoring um, her. What that says is I'm more scared of my partner's reaction. So I'm going to suppress what's these moments inside of me that are painful because I'm more scared that the pain that comes up when they react is bigger than me tending to myself. And that might be a familiar thing that they learned actually in childhood. Well, I better keep it to myself because my parents don't really respond in a way that makes me feel good or seen or heard. And again, your parents might not be aware of this. And so you learn to kind of keep it in versus you know, giving it the appropriate voice. And again, you might, your little me might be reacting. And so that's where your adult might have to do some work with her and have conversations and understand, boil it down to what's really going on. And then hopefully come to your partnership with a clearer understanding of what's going on for you versus a blaming of them. And maybe, or even a request of them that they can't perfectly meet, but so they can start understanding you deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, If not, you're just it's just going to bubble up and come out another way. Yeah. So as we've learned unhealthy, and this is a good point, I think, to mention these characters, if you like, that's how I saw them in the book. They were maybe a bit like Patronuses and Death Eaters, but maybe I'm taking the Harry Potter stuff too far, but the nurturers and the protectors Uh uh that are these voices, I guess, uh, that we build up, that we create in order again, to make us safe. And the protector might be protecting us, but actually, as maybe we've aged out of, we've grown up, the way in which they protect us are now actually harming us. Yeah. And, you know, yes, they are. And we want to thank them and welcome them and understand what they're actually protecting us from. Um, Sometimes they're an internalized critical parent or the voice of society or they're internalized people like so a lot of the book talks about re internalizing nurturing people. And sometimes we take in an anxious parent or this is really the voice of my mother or a sister or society has told me I have to be this thin or look this way. Right. And so you must work harder. You must do this. You must do that. And they lead us down this path of working harder or being thinner or or criticizing us because they want, and they think that if we're thin or beautiful or successful or this or that, we won't feel pain. And so they're trying to prevent us from feeling abandoned or feeling less than, and in that preventing us, they're leading us down these, the best way they can. They're leading us down these roads that inevitably they don't really prevent us from feeling pain. And so in the moment, if we buy into them, they might actually be helping us and and looking at where we 
internalize those messages and whose voices those really are and what they're really protecting us from is pain most of the time. And so when you really start to understand them, you welcome them and you say, thank you for being there. And I understand what you're trying to do, but you know, I'm not going to choose to think about it this way. Now I'm going to choose to maybe have another option right here and, and pick another voice and another feeling and not be so critical on myself or not so, so shaming. And a lot of people really struggle with that because when you give up the critical voice, you feel like you're going to free fall. You feel like, well, you know, what, what is then? Well, you replace that with a middle voice, a loving voice. It's not a free for all. It's a, the parental nurturing way of, of coping with things when you make a mistake or looking at your body differently or understanding what, that you don't need to give so much to receive love and, and, you know, kind of re working with a voice that just is the voice that maybe you didn't receive. And sometimes you need to experience that. You often need to experience that voice and that presence and that essence externally enough to take it in internally and say, okay, well, you know, this is what my therapist might say, or my best friend has really loving advice. And so can I take her in? What would it feel like to have her in the room? What, what, what advice would she give me right now? And that's when we're re internalizing these, um, this internal community. And we're starting to have more options to our life events and starting to use loving people as a new avenue to our own responses. I just had Daniel Pink on the podcast talking about his book about regret. And one of the things that he said right at the end of the show was just a really good rule is if you're in that space where you're trying to make a decision, uh, just what advice would you give your best friend? And it was really, it really reminded me of that and how actually if you do this work, say someone's listening to this and I hope no one's in this position, but if you are, maybe you don't feel as though you have those nurturing voices around you that you can bring in. But if you begin to do this work, it does seem, and obviously you've got a lot of experience with this. If you do that in a work, you will likely attract those more nurturing voices and people into your life so that not only will you have them in your world, but you'll be able to then have more of that best friend voice internally too. Yeah. I mean, that's both spiritual and scientific. So if you start to do the work and develop some compassion for yourself, your nervous system shifts, some things shift. And you, if you ask for the right help, I do believe the right help shows up. I remember a time in my life, I was going through a really hard time and it was not a therapist. It was actually a really good friend. He stayed on the phone with me every night. I don't know how the man survived, but he just listened to me and listened. He never fixed me. He never told me I was going crazy. Sometimes I would think about the same thing over and over again. And he would just hold space for me and hold space for me and hold space. And sometimes these earth angels or these healers don't show up as a therapist. Um, sometimes therapists want to fix things too much, um, but sometimes they are a therapist or a coach, but it's really about people who are non-judgmental, warm consistent, have a ventral state in their nervous system, which is complicated, but can hold deep space with you without getting, holding it with you rather than being in it with you, rather than trying to fix it with you. And again, I think our parents and the people who love us want to fix it. They don't want to see us in pain, but it's about holding that with you. So you can be with more and more of yourself. And I think it comes up so many people who people who are in the rooms like AA it comes up through sponsorship. It comes up through, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, healing anxious attachment is about finding people 
who have this capacity to not feel threatened by your anxiety and to hold the space when you're in these like really unbearable moments and not fix you. That's actually part of the wiring. And yeah, you're right. When you start to do this work, when you ask for it, the teacher comes or the person comes and there's a spiritual component. Um, I've been in therapy my whole life and the deeper and deeper I get, the more I call in people who are more appropriate to hold deeper space for me. And so start where you are and the more work you get will lead you to more and more people and more and more souls that can hold more and more space. And it's an evolution um, in that process. I think it's very parallel. And I think it has a lot to do with nervous system attracting another nervous system. And, you know, if, if you attract someone who holds deep space, it might be too much for you. So Everybody, you know, when you reach out, you start to notice warm, consistent, non-judgmental people. That's what I'm looking for as I heal my attachment. That's who I need to call when I'm in crisis. Not people who are like, leave him, leave her, pour gasoline on it. Tell me, or let me label the other person. No, just hold space. Just be there for me, for my nervous system to understand I'm not alone when I'm feeling so dysregulated. That's really what you want um, over and over and over again in order to work through rather than to fix or change your external world, but to work through the harder moments within yourself. I'm having far too many light bulb moments during this conversation. (laughs) I'm struggling to stay focused, but I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it to you now because I think it's relevant is previously, and I am doing the work, I am that person who can walk into a room and I will be drawn energetically towards the most dangerous dynamic. And I guess let's just use a scenario that everyone can think of. It's high school. It's that there are the popular girls, there are the whatever, but there's there's the whole, it's like um, wildlife on one. It's It's like watching nature. There's the apex predators and there's what have you. I will be drawn towards the worst people for me. I will almost go over to them like a heat seeking missile. And I've kind of unpicked some of that in therapy, but what I'm learning is that actually that's, even though my, I will instantly be able to identify that and want to go towards it. I now consciously walk away from it. And that's where I find my tribe. (laughs) That's where I find my people, but that, that actually doesn't, doesn't come easily. Maybe it does to some people, but it certainly doesn't to me. I, oh, I just got chills in my body. Um, I think, you know, sometimes we're attracted to people that we think they have something like the really pretty girl, maybe deep down, that's some, a trait we want or the really, you know, on edge person, because we're like a little, and I talk about like the lost parts of ourselves, but I think the advice I can give you for my own personal life and you as a host and now a friend is you want to find people who can connect from a heartfelt sense of place, people who are really present and see you. And when you're in the presence of them, you feel for the most part, I mean, we're humans, that they're connecting deeply to you at your essence and that they are the type of people who below that they don't have that superficial need for connection. And sometimes that's a way in for some people. So it might be the way they present at first, but when you're spending more and more time with them, you feel safer and safer to be yourself. And that there is a connection from the heart that is genuine on both sides. And so you want to look for that. And if you're connecting with people who are showing these traits or these unhealthy qualities, 
it says something about what you think might be lacking inside of you. Um, you might've felt left out at one point. You might've felt like not the cool girl. You might have felt like you, you know, there's something in there that you're like gravitating towards um, that you need to heal because she doesn't need to be with the popular people and she doesn't need to, you know, like she is perfect the way she is and she can gravitate towards people who have common interests. And for me, it's, I can't go out to dinner and this has to do with my childhood um, because I need deep connection. I can't go out to dinner with a group of people who are like, this is the new handbag I got. And da, 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 da. I need, I need soul connection. I need to know, like, ask me how I'm doing. Let me be able to really deeply tell you how I'm doing. Tell me how you're really doing. Like, I know that that's a need for me. That might not be a need for everyone. I didn't get a ton of that because my parents didn't know how to do that. They they, they still struggle with that and they love me. But I know that when I go out with a friend, I need to feel like we're connecting on this deep level or with a group of friends that there's a deeper connection going on there. And so if you're being pulled towards a group because of some superficial outer layer or some trait, it's really more about looking inward and understanding where you thought you were lacking. I'll say the good girl is attracted to the bad boy. Yeah. It's, it's not really that it's, and my husband is a risk taker and I pay all my taxes. Not that he doesn't pay his taxes, but like I'm, be, I'm playing, I'm being facetious, but like opposites aren't necessarily bad. Um, but you know, it's lost parts of ourselves. And then that's where compromise comes in. You know what I mean? Like he gets me to relax a little bit more. I get him to think about things a little bit differently. I'm a planner. He's more spontaneous. They're harder relationships because we're inherently different, but the attraction there isn't a bad thing. It's just something to notice like, okay, he has a quality of risk-taking that I was too scared to take. And so I admire that in him. And now it's also the thing that I'm like, drive safe, honey be careful, honey. You know what I mean? So the very thing that I'm attracted to is also the very thing that scares the hell out of me. (laughs) And it says to me, this is where you need to loosen up and let go and surrender some of your fear and learn to be, you know, more on the edge or embrace your spirituality or your, you know, that just that part of you. So it's, it's neither all bad or no, or all good. It's just more information. It's more Mm -hmm. information. And a lot of this comes from calming down and listening to little me, listening to what's really going on and connecting with that. And actually what's really interesting is you have tons of meditations. I mean, Uh I know that they're referenced in the book, but they're on the website. You actually have these practices that can really help you get into that space. If someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, this all sounds fine, but I think I might need a therapist and this sounds like quite hard work. It can begin with like a simple breathing exercise and looking inward, right? Yeah. Wow. Yep. And so I wanted the book to be, I wanted as the author, when you read it, we are in it together. And I wanted there, I wanted everything. I tried to give the reader everything. And the truth is healing doesn't really happen in a book, but I gave as much as I possibly could in a book. I wanted a somatic, like I wanted an experience that you could also take. And part of healing is becoming connected to your body and the sensations in your body and little me. And if you study trauma or developmental trauma or lives in the body, doesn't live in the head. So all these people want to manifest and do all these things in your head. The truth is healing happens when we start to get more and more attuned to what's going on inside our body. So I um, developed these practices that are hard 
They're about slowing down and going inwards and being with different parts of our body and doing nothing but learning how to listen to sensation because sensation is the language of the body. And so, yes, I, I'm actually re-recording them. They're fabulous right now. I'm taking another stab at them, but they are practices that I want people to do. And if intense sensations come up or memories come up, I do actually want you to bring them to another nervous system to help hold them because sometimes they, it's in the re-experiencing of someone else being able to go, what came up for you? And let me regulate that with you. But yeah, the, the work is going into your body and becoming more embodied and starting to listen to your body more, less of what society or your protectors are telling you to do and more attuned to what your body's actually signaling. And sometimes it's fear and sometimes it's old stuff, but sometimes it's new stuff, but it's our heart knows our heart stores all the pain from breakup and disconnection, but also all the warmth if we ever did feel connected and these different moments in our belly stores a lot of fear and people don't realize that their brain centers that are sending information upward a lot more than information being sent downward. So when you start to do this work, it's about becoming more embodied. So I really wanted to give the reader who really wanted to do more work, more options than just the logical part of the book, but also like an experiential piece. I was really shooting for the stars and trying to pack as much as I could in with this book to just start that process of opening the door into your body. And the, you know, the book is supposed to, it's not like a one shop heal, but it's like, I hope it shifts you enough to bring this to continue along your path. And it opens the door in new ways, in so many new ways that you can't go backwards. Now you're healing and now you understand things in a different way. And now you're uncovering so much about yourself that you want to continue, continue, continue this unfolding process. So that's why I put the meditative pieces into the book. I have to be honest, when I finished the book, I thought, right, okay, I know this now. And that changes a lot it does change a lot. I think it's something I will think about so much. And I also thought if I want to bury this, I have to willfully suppress what I've learned. <laughs> like actually that would take quite a lot of effort to willfully say, I'm not going to pay any attention to this because, uh-huh. uh-huh. because it's also, it's not like you, when you read it, I don't think you get to the end and feel indifferent about it I think you definitely think you identify yourself within the pages regardless of where you sit on the spectrum if you like and you are also given the tools and it's presented to you in a very um sort of clinical way if you like yeah, like you say you kind of write things out but then there's this sort of spiritual element to it and you've got the meditative side of it so yeah you would have to willfully say yeah I don't want to do that work but there's no way it doesn't plant seeds Yeah. And I think even if you didn't want to fully do the work, it's going to shift you to start to look at yourself completely different. And I don't know who wouldn't want that shift unless you want to remain unconscious and in painful, repeating painful patterns. I get it, you know, and I think the shift can be hard because it's like, now I have the information and it's like, what do I do with it? (laughs) But I think it's better than not having the information at all, in my opinion. And at least you start your process. So yeah, I 
I've had some clients tell me like halfway through, well, ignorance was bliss, but then, you know, when they were doing the work, they're like, but I wouldn't trade just for the world. So you can have those feelings in the harder moments, but I think opening that door is just to healing. It's just so worth it when you're, and when you're going through it, it's an evolution, you know, it's, it's something that the more you do, the easier it gets. Mm -hmm. And you also, you say at one point being anxiously attached has its gifts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, yeah. like you just say, I think uh, ignorance can be seen as bliss. And I've had this conversation with so many friends. Just imagine, imagine living your life and you never picked up one of these books or you never spoke to a psychotherapist or you never listened to one of these people and realized that the raw materials that you have can be shaped. Like, actually, I think that if you're like, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're engaged with this conversation, you're really, you're open to something really wonderful happening I think there's something very hopeful about these kind of topics even if they can seem quite confronting and difficult at times there's I feel as though there's always hope embedded in there somewhere I got really lucky because anxious people codependent people whatever you want to label them love to help themselves so we our natural inclination is to reach out for help like it's actually harder if you're avoidant to reach out for help and and they have a little, actually a harder path. Um, But one of the gifts we have is we are really great co-regulators. We're usually really great therapists. We're really empathic. We have big hearts. We invest a lot in what we do. We're very passionate. And, you know, so I think, you know, I think if you're listening to this, there's a good chance there's a part of you that that is calling to be healed and calling for more information. And that's inherently part of the wiring. Like, so if you do the research, it's the anxious kid that's probably raising their hand a little bit more in class or getting a little bit more help because we know that if you collaborate or you reach out, usually we can get more help or we're a little insecure. We think we can't do it alone. So we'll reach out for more information and more information. So, but that's a good thing. We're not supposed to heal alone. We need this information and we need help. And that's, it's just exciting to offer this to that population because they desperately want it. And, you know, it's being with the suffering, but it's also healing the suffering. It's, it's an opportunity to um, be with yourself in a new way that dissipates a lot of that deep pain. So it's, it's an offering and I'm happy to offer it to this population because I am this population and I've read every single book out there. And I think that we need a book that's about the, you know, the deep attachment and and the nervous system. So yeah, if you're listening and you're this population, like I know that you, you inherently are, are, are craving some more answers to what's really going on in your body and in your relationships in your life. So that's, that's a really great thing that you want to look at it. And I think as well, just to right at the beginning, when you talk about the nervous system, it took me a really long time to realize how activated my anxiety always was. And maybe I thought I was an anxious person, but I didn't realize what that anxiety was coming from, where it was stemming from. Uh And again, if someone is listening to this and maybe they have identified, oh, I, I have anxiety and that's kind of a blanket term that they use. This is a really good way of kind of figuring out the roots of that so that you can then untangle them. Absolutely. And, you know, that anxiety lives inside of you and is a protector of you and learning how to slow down and rest is not something that we're taught ever. 
and be with is not something, if our parents couldn't be with their emotions, how the hell are they supposed to be with our emotions? And so looking at it from that new lens of, okay, I have this anxiety, it's running all the time. I'm in sympathetic activation. And part of the work is learning to slow down with the right support. It will just be such an unveiling of more and more of you and and open the door to so much more healing. And I want to stress the right support. Make sure you have a couple of friends knowing that you're doing this work or you're starting to go inward or you're starting to allow more sensations to come up because it can be scary for an anxious person to go through this alone. And you're not supposed to, you're supposed to lean. I call the trust fall. You're supposed to lean and trust that there are people out there that will pick up the phone and be there for you and align those people up as you start to heal your attachment system. Mm. It's that thing, isn't it? It's having those people around. You're not leaning on them to try and fix you. You just want them, as you so brilliantly said earlier, just to hold space for you so that you can be who you really are and just kind of say, what's going on? Yeah, and move through it. Because you think about parents are trying to fix sometimes the upset and they don't know how to like be with the upset. So now we have to learn to be with it. So you need, sometimes you need somebody else to also just be with it because it can be really scary depending on where the wounding, if the wounding was really young, it can be very scary to experience completely alone. So that's why I say if the wounding was a little older, then it's not as scary. But if it was a very young wounding, which you're not always conscious of when the wounding is, it can feel scary. So having that, you know, that friend you can call is is super important. And to leave listeners with just a little bit more hope, I do love a little bit of hope. Uh One of the last, uh, case studies, if you like, in the book is about the lady who is in a relationship, she's chasing after it, she's chasing after it. And then she uh, moves back to Florida, Uh spends a bit more time doing, spending time with her family and just being who she is, stops chasing and holding on to a bad relationship and actually connects with what she wants and gets it. Uh Yeah. So anxious people tend to zero in and they have a hard time letting go. And both those things are adaptive and there's nothing wrong with them. They tend to focus on commitment because they think that's going to bring them security, which is an illusion. Um, The commitment in a relationship comes down to the energetic dance and the quality of the relationship, but it's a paradox. It's a very hard paradox, but if you let go and lean into the people in your life who are showing up consistently and build a foundation from there, love doesn't come in. Well, if you're doing the work, it doesn't come in and completely take over your world. It gets integrated into your world. And there's a very big difference between, you know, completely getting swept away to, I met this person and now they're integrating into my world. And and that's what she did. She left a very lonely talk, like I want to say toxic, but a relationship where she was just super giving of herself and, and there wasn't a lot of energy being exchanged. And he was very preoccupied on work. She came here, she integrated back into her family and back into her friends and started her hobbies again. And so that led to open her world back up and not focus on the one per se and allow that person to come in. So it's, it's, if you're listening and you really want that person, it's so hard to say you have to surrender that a little and focus on who is here right now showing up for you and how can you spend more time with in their presence with their nervous systems connecting to those relationships because they're teaching you more about the type of nervous system and the type of connection that you want to let in as an integration versus 
you know, that fairy tale, like this takes over my life and I'm going to, you know, go off on an Island and it's just me and my lover for the rest of my life. (laughs) I could talk to you for a hundred more hours, but it would Mm -hmm. turn into a very personal session. And I don't (laughs) think I'm ready to commit that to take. (laughs) Um, No, it's been great. It has been such a pleasure to speak to you. I will put the links to the book in the show notes. And actually, I wonder if this might spark quite a few questions from listeners. And if it does, it would be great to have you back on to do a Q&A. To I maybe, um, Okay, brilliant. Fantastic. Uh, Jessica Baum, thank you so much for coming on to The Emma Gunn Show. Thank you so much. And you know, Emma, you are an incredible host. And thank you so much for reading the book and just asking all the right questions. I really appreciate you. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.